This is Captivated Minds. I'm Stan. I'm Jake. And this is uh, our beginning part of our ser- uh, Summer of Serial series. We're uh, diving deep into various serial killers. And these are going to be <clears throat> not your... I can't really say normal, but like... Happy not, normal? Not not like the heavy hitters. Not not this, people that are well known. We right. had to dig a little bit to find some, uh, some of these. So... We, what we wanted to do with this was kind of pick unknown serial killers. Yeah, we didn't want to do John Wayne Gacy, not yet, or Ted Bundy. We'll not do yet. that way later down the line. We wanted to really just go dive into some people that I've never heard of, people, of. Mostly, only locals know some of these guys. There are some books written about some of these people, but it's uh, just the individual cases, not the entire you know, their entire lives or things like that. We kind of dig a little bit into their lives, but it's mostly about what they did and how they did it. And that's where we kind of ran into some problems. <laughs> so because these people are so unknown, uh, there's not a lot of information about them. No, there isn't. Um, so what we decided to do was we decided to take two serial killers, a man, uh, man and a woman serial killer, and put them all in one episode. That way there we have a little bit of diversity, and that way there we can kind of give different perspectives on their different stories, too. So we wanted to do one serial killer for eight weeks. So now we're going to do two serial killers every week for eight weeks. So we're going to get like 16, 16. 16 yeah. serial killers. That's still a and lot. Then, That's a lot of serial killers. And then we have a bonus one that we're going to do towards late, the, probably towards the end. Yeah, down, down the line. Um, we're also continuing our movie mayhem series as well, and our conspiracy corner series too. Yeah, so we coming up, you guys are gonna have a lot to listen to. Uh, we we know we said we weren't gonna do a cons- uh, conspiracy corner, but with Fourth of July weekend and stuff, we decided to throw it in there. Might as well just uh, you know have have some episode for you guys to listen to. Because um, oh. we're we're not going to be recording then, so no. we decided to record an, an extra conspiracy corner episode just to get it out there. Our first serial killer in the summer of serial series is Kristen Gilbert. She is known as the Angel of Death. Now, the term Angel of Death has several different meanings. Some claim it is an angel that helps with the motions of ending the life of a person or persons. Some religions even refer to Azrael as the Angel of Death. Different ideologies think that death and Azrael are two separate beings who facilitate in the moving on or killing of a person. Azrael is the positive side of death, an angel who helps the human in some form or fashion in the transitional period. Now, I know you're going to get into this, but there are, uh, killer-wise, there are different types of like angels of death. There, there are the ones who are think they're doing it to help people move on. There's some who do it just to get a thrill out of it. Um, and then there's there's some they, it's like the, the hero mode kicks in where they put this person in danger or tries to kill and then they revive them and then they seem like they're the hero. So each killer is just a little bit unique in their ideologies or in how they do things really i mean all killers kind of go along the same track but how they do it is very different yeah 
Kristen Gilbert was born November 13, 1967, as Kristen Strickland. She was born in Fall River, Massachusetts. From a very young age, she was described by others as being very smart. Things would start to change for her in her teenage years. While she was a teenager, her behavior began to deviate from her typical childlike image. She would pick up lying, having some neurotic tendencies. Neurotic behavior can be habits or ritualized things. These habits within the personality lead individuals to perform actions that can cause long-term effects on the person. These long-term effects are not on the positive side unless the behavior is diagnosed, treated in a proper manner. The behavior is almost obsessive-compulsive tendencies with a mix of rational anxieties. And that, that is uh, kind of the theme when it comes to serial killers when they were younger. You know, There's always they, some sort of childhood trauma that really affects who they are as a person. Right, and uh, they also say maybe a bad fall... Uh, I think it was like Ted Bundy. They looked at his brain and like there was some damage to a certain spot in the brain. That could have affected the chemistry of his brain too and changed his personality, not for the better. Right. So a lot of these kids who who have some sort of, I, I guess you would call it a, a disorder, um, end up, if they're not treated, ends up growing and growing and becoming a huge it problem later. It escalates very in life. quickly yeah. if it's not diagnosed or fixed at a young age. If the parents don't know how to deal with them or if they don't know how to really react to what they're doing, they'll just let it go. Right. At the right age of 16, Kristen graduates high school. Being able to graduate high school at such a young age must have had a real uh, effect on her confidence, and it really boosted it. When she does graduate at 16, it is with honors. In 1984, she enrolls in Bridgewater State College. She takes a major of pre-med. Kristen has a dark sense of humor and would often self-compare herself to Lizzie Borden. By comparing herself to Lizzie, she was already planting mental seeds within her mind about the image of Lizzie and perhaps even on some level, she would have looked up to her in a weird, sick way. In her mind, it wasn't a joke. You tell yourself something enough, your mind begins to make it happen on some certain, some mental level. <laughs> now, did you know they say that having a dark sense of humor is some sort of like mental problem? I guess and, I guess we're really <laughs> we have some real mental problems here. I know. Minds. I know. So, like, just w as you're reading that, I was like, man. I have a real dark sense of humor. Me, I have a really dark sense right? of humor too, but I'm not going to compare but, myself to Lizzie Borden. I know that is really messed up that she compared herself to her already. This is only and, 1984. And here's the other thing. It sounds like she's a pretty smart girl. She is. She graduates at 16. Not many people graduate at no, 16. And with honors. And then she's going on to medical school. So like to do that and then to sit there and like tell people, Hey, but I'm Lizzie hey, Borden. My idol is Lizzie. Lizzie. Yeah. That's really messed up. That is really messed up. In 1985, she develops another new terrible habit. She's now becoming abusive with a boyfriend she has. She's vocally and physically abusive toward current and past boyfriends. So far, things are not looking hopeful within her mental state as she seems to, as it slowly seems to be escalating. See, now, now here comes. The, the violent part. So she was lying, abusive, yep. 
and it's just slowly starting to come to a head. So, I mean, it, it did, it did kind of escalate slowly. That's right. It wasn't like a quick thing. No. Um, it was over time. Because usually when, uh, like the violent part happens, it, it still is in with the childhood thing where it's like, okay, they're lying. Now they moved on to like stealing as a child. Then they moved on to like cruelty animals, um, even cruel, like real, uh, cruelty towards like your siblings and stuff like that. And, and it goes bigger from there. So it just escalates. They, they're trying to get like a new thrill every bigger thing that they do. So lying was something small that she could kind of get away with, but abusing current boyfriends. Now that's something on a whole other level too. And, and of course, this is, this is, uh, what, 85? That's right. So. I bet you anything her boyfriends aren't going to go to the police and say, no. hey, I'm getting beat up by no, my girlfriend. No, they're not, they're not going to do that at uh, all. I mean, nowadays, guys still don't do that because, you know. They feel kind of ashamed or they feel right. kind of like, hey, this not really happening to me at all. Well, and a lot of times people don't even believe them. No, you, because you typically know, it's the male that does it, it to the female. So right. it's very uncommon when the female does it to the male. It, exactly. Summer of 1986, she meets Glenn Gilbert. And from 1986 to 1987, she transfers to another college. She actually transfers twice. The first time she goes to Wachusett Community College. Then after that, she transfers to Greenfield Community College. The second transfer was so that she could be closer to Glenn. Bridgewater State University, where she first attended college, is the largest state university within the state. This college is also the oldest institution of higher learning within the state of Massachusetts. The second college she attends, Mount Wachusett Community College, is a small college compared to the first. It only roughly has 11,000 students. This one is located within Gardner, Mass. The third college she attends is Greenfield Community College. This particular community college is only one out of 15 community colleges within the state. This college is also even smaller than the second one. This college only has around 1,800 students. So from this little bit of information, we can gather that she was moving from uh, smaller to smaller colleges. We can also attest that she's no longer pushing herself like she did in high school. Now, you as a college graduate. Yeah. I'm not. But you as one. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how, like, the loan process works, okay? You can transfer now, it over from, can school you transfer school, your... from school to school. But when you go from school to school, though, credits, it's a tricky system. Credits may not transfer over. Some will, some more, like, general education credits will transfer over. But if you have any, like, selective classes, those may not transfer over. So every time you transfer over, you may have to take classes over again. So, I mean, that's, she's, like, putting herself into a lot of work. That's right. And to go from a um, <clears throat> a university, that's right, and then drop your down self down to a community college. That's a big difference. That's a huge. Difference. I, I mean, I know that's a huge difference. difference. But so, it's also a huge difference <clears throat> in price, though, too. So a regular college could be forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. A community college will be ten to twelve. So she's saving a little bit, a bit of, of money, money there. That's right. But I mean, to jump from school to school, you would think you get exhausted after a while. It's a lot of moving. That is a lot of moving, especially if you're a, a dormy. Yeah. I mean, I could. A lot of these schools aren't going to be like real close to each other. No, so it's, so it's like probably you, hours away. Right. It's not like you can live in one area and drive. The last college <laughs> she transferred was for a relationship, and that alone would add another layer of stress to the mix. Stress can slowly add up with various factors like moving all the time and changing schools. 
The college was not her clear choice, but it was a clear choice so she could be closer to Glenn. 1987, Kristen gets a new job as a health aide with the Visiting Nurses Association. Now, at one point during the job, she scolds a child that has uh, mental and physical limitations. This is one incident that causes damage over 60% of the child's body. She was never charged with anything, and in 1987, she is now displaying some very clear problems. She's not shying away from anything on the morally bad side. 60% of the child's body. 60%. That's a lot. That's a lot. I believe it was with hot water. Wow. So she's escalating things very drastically from lying to abusing boyfriends to now harming childs. Wow. Now, I've seen, I've seen, like, burn victims with just, like, 30% of their body burned, and it looks like a lot. I could only imagine 60% of uh, just a little kid, say, under two years old. Right. I just, mean, that might, it might look like their entire body's covered. That's right. Wow. In 1988, three major events would slowly start to shape her. Without her family knowing, she went ahead and married Glenn. The second event is a little harder to place. We aren't sure if this is before or after the wedding. Kristen chases Glenn around the house with a butcher knife after a couple's argument. Now, if Glenn noticed any odd behavior before the wedding, he could have just written it off as stress. But once they were married, if every time they argue a knife is drawn, something isn't right. Uh, I mean... I mean, Honestly. you're married. I'm not married. You're married. I mean, I'm, I'm, you guys have arguments, I'm if, sure. Are knives involved with arguments? If your wife doesn't try killing you at least once, I mean, it's not a marriage. Wow. I mean, at least With, with a knife? I mean, she's she's got a knife. No, my wife would use a spoon. A spoon? Yeah, make sure it hurts longer. Like a little spork? Suffer. Right. Like, yeah. Not even a spork. Like a real dull spoon. A real, du- I mean, why not even sharpen the spoon a little bit? Just no, a little bit, of, want, a little bit of fun. She, no, she'd want to make sure that it just slowly gets there. <laughs> there are some concerning issues that they need to face after the fight. My guess is that Glenn would have have given her a choice to get her crap together or leave. Glenn still stays with Kristen, even after the horrible fight. <laughs> See, I mean. He still stays with her, though. That's the thing. Okay, so all seriousness. All seriousness. If my wife came after me with a butcher knife once. You're you're done? Once. You're done? I'm done. Because then you have have a whole level of worriness after that. You have to sleep next to this person if you're married. (laughs) I know. You would would get no sleep because you'd be afraid of what's going on. How's your mental state? What's really going like? But the other thing is... You would think Glenn would sit there and go, hey, maybe you need it. I guess with her mental state, you wouldn't want to say this, but maybe you need to get some help. Maybe you need to get some medication or or something. Talk to someone? Yeah. Therapist. The the third thing that happened uh, to Kristen is that she graduates Greenfield Community College. She graduates with a degree in nursing. Now, we mentioned earlier she was pre-med. Her major clearly changed at some point from pre-med to nursing. This choice could have affected her mental state as well. Could that? So if she wanted to be a doctor and then she turned to a nurse, so that would have been a, a big jump. Could it have also been money wise? That would have made sense. I mean, being a doctor, you got to go to school for a fairly long time. It's a fairly long time, eight and, to ten years, my guess. Yeah, and that—that's a lot of money that you're. Spe- I mean, I'm thinking 
what, a couple hundred thousand dollars? At least, I might guess. I'm not a doctor. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. At least. You a know. nurse would probably be, what, four, five years, maybe? My guess? M- yeah, maybe. I would Maybe think a little so. longer or shorter. It would really depend. Right. I mean, I, th- I think the way it works is you can, like my wife, she did the LNA thing first. You know, that's like a mid-level type of thing. And then you have your, a tier above that. What, CNA or something like something that? Something like that. There are a lot of, like, work with medications and stuff like that. And then you have your RN, your registered nurse. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're an LNA, you could be working for for the plate because you have to have a certain amount of, uh, like, hours, hours and things like within, that. Within, I believe. So, you can sit there and go work in that facility as an LNA, go to school for nursing, and build yourself up, and then become a nurse. I can't remember how long it would take, though. Around this time, she also receives a license as a registered nurse. Things seem to calm down a little bit with the fighting. If there are any more issues within their marriage, it isn't clearly documented from what we could find. Both her and Glenn could have easily found a way to talk through their arguments if they had any. It is now 1989. Kristen gets a job at Leeds Veterans Medical Center. With this medical center, uh, doctors and nurses are able to help treat people for medical and psychiatric help for elderly veterans. Within this facility, they are also able to deal with substance abuse, PTSD, and control uh, substance control issues. It does seem like the place where if you wanted to help someone, you could get help or you know, vice versa. The medical center is also located within Northampton, Massachusetts. Let's just recap a little bit about Kristen. She's not a nurse. She's married. She's done a couple of bad things, but uh, others are quiet about it. In 1990, some people begin to notice an odd pattern within Ward C, which, are where, which is where she is working. A large amount of deaths are starting to take place all over this ward while Kristen is on the clock and working within Ward C. One doctor even stopped her from treating his patients. Uh, now, at some point, you would think that the hospital has some clear idea of what is going on. No one really knew anything was going on until after the fact. I mean, what? I wonder what what they thought. Like, oh, all these veterans are now just committing suicide, or they're just dying They're just for dying, really. Weird reason, reason or, yeah. or something like that. And then for... A doctor to walk in and be like, hey, uh, what are you doing? Yeah, stop working on like, my patient. That that says something right there. I mean, I'd turn her in in a heartbeat. I, I would, I'd be like, okay, was, we, we need to go to the board with this. Like, there, there's, not, there's no real clear evidence. It's just kind of speculation. Oh, the speculation. speculation. I mean, oh, <laughs> like a handful of people just died. She was on the clock at that time. But man, we don't have enough evidence. That's right. That's, no, really, that's it. I know. Now, within 1990, Kristen makes a clear name for herself and managed to get featured in a magazine, The VA Practitioners. We can only clearly wonder if the magazine knew about her past, or if they did, they uh, didn't touch upon it. The magazine may want to point, may wanted to point out the positive side of what she was doing within the hospital. I will try to find the magazine. It might be a little tough. I did try to look for it. I... It, it was a little rough, but it, I mean, I, it, it might be there. You might have to do some digging. I mean, it'd be cool if I could find like her the cover, like the cover, her article, maybe with her Snippets. picture. Uh, yeah, I mean, that'd be kind of something cool to just to look at. 
the other nurses had a nickname for Kristen. After people would die on her watch, the nurses jokingly started to refer to her as the Angel of Death. We can only wonder what she thought of this nickname. On one level, it could have fed into her dark thoughts and helped create the vile image she was slowly building for herself. Kristen may not have known about the nickname until years later. With a nickname like that, it does, some, it does draw some attention to you as a person, even if you don't want the attention. I mean, here's the thing. I bet, I bet she found out, like, what her name was. Because uh, they talk. People talk. People talk. And then sometimes people are talking and they don't realize the person they're talking about is, like, within ear, ear distance. distance. Yeah. So if she did hear that name, I'm thinking it was like that like a confidence booster it like could have a, been you know it fed into her ideology or her kind of right desire to do what she was doing like almost like hey you know what i am the angel of death and i'm gonna take that name and i'm gonna roll with it right now now things are going to spiral out of control within the walls of ward c Kristen was uh, the best kind of co-worker she would often re- often remember birthdays for her fellow co-workers she was also really social and had a bubbly personality. She was described as highly skilled profi- and proficient in her duties and tasks. She also seemed to keep a head on her shoulders during medical emergencies. Now, that's a little weird. She's kind of two different people. She's one person where she's really nice and shows that she's helpful to others. And then on the other side, she may be killing patients in Ward C. We just don't know yet. <laughs> no clue. And, and And, of course, this is what people at work are seeing you know that they're, they, the, they're seeing two their, images of her. their co-workers don't even know might not know what she's like outside of work you know that's right home. so technically she she has this like embodiment of like three different people people like she has her her good side at work her bad side at work and then her almost insane side at, at home, home with yeah. like up beating her boyfriends and, and stuff using like that. almost using a knife on Glenn. Right. <clears throat> in 1991, Kristen had her first son Brian. While this year was not an eventful one for her, we can assume that on some level, having a child may have calmed her down to some certain extent. At that same point during the 1990s, she found a strange box in the hospital. When the police arrived, their conclusion was that it was not a bomb. The entire area of Ward C had to be evacuated for hours. Now, did she think it was a bomb? One theory I have is that she wanted control. By wanting this control, she also wanted to control the police in a certain level, and this would have been a power move on her part. Have you ever thought of how weird it is when serial killers have children and they're like real good parents that is very weird like real loving caring i mean look at btk that's right like, it was they, almost it was almost like we said earlier like they had separate lives like right. the, the maternal side of them was very good and honest while their dark side was to the, the so far to the extreme that it didn't really matter what they did it's it's almost like uh you think about it like predators in real life uh alligators and stuff you know normally they're just vicious killers that's right if you look at them and then you see them with their babies and they're just like calm as calm and like holding them in their mouths and stuff like that so that's almost like what a serial killer is that as we're doing 
the research for all the stuff we've done, I'm noticing that the the predator um, aspect of these serial killers or or whatever the the name the name predator is a true thing. That's you right. look at you look at these people and then you look at predators in the wild. They're the same thing. They are very close. Uh, 1993, Kristen gives her Kristen has her second son Raymond. She also uh, she has Raymond on her birthday. Here is your birthday present. Now you're going into labor, sort of thing. During this time in their marriage with Glenn, things slowly started to deteriorate. It seemed like uh, Glenn had enough at this point and perhaps needed a way out. Kristen develops a new uh, friendship with James Perut. He works as a security guard at the hospital. These two would often be often be caught socializing with one another at the end of their shift. Kristen begins to have an affair with James while she's still married to Glenn. By this time, her and Glenn were drifting apart while her and James were growing closer. Also at this time, she leaves Glenn and the kids and gets her own apartment while she still works at the hospital. What kind of person would just leave her kids like that? Now, I get if you aren't happy in your marriage, that's one thing. But leaving your young kids, that's something completely different. Yeah, uh... You see it time and time again. Like, you never really see it from the mom, though. No, you don't. You typically see that, it from the dad. That is a... It's a very rare thing to see. I mean, I hate to, I hate to put, like, a bad stamp on, on like, men. But, but it, uh, no, it is true, though. You know, grow, growing up, you know, that was the thing. The thing was, like... Everyone's parents were divorced, and everyone lived with their moms. Yeah, that's like, right. That's how it was. Yeah. You know, people still saw their dads and stuff, but everyone lived with their moms. No one lived with their dads. In this case, it was kind of reversed. It was reversed. I mean, and this is this is early 90s. You know, this is the time we grew up. That's right. So, I mean, it's the same sort of same thing. Yeah. In 1995, Kristen and Glenn's marriage fully falls apart. She has been with James now for almost a year. Glenn makes the smart move by getting out while he still could. During this time, Kristen also performs performs her first kill. She kills a patient within the hospital. She kills a Mr. Stanley uh, Jagodowski. Sorry about that. Here is a little bit of information about Stanley. He was a he was a Korean War veteran. <clears throat> Korean War veteran who was also a truck driver at some point during his life it is also possible that he drove trucks for a living after coming home from the war in this her first kill she would have used epinephrine this medicine is designed to do a couple of major things for a person it is designed to stop severe asthma and allergic reactions this medicine can also be used as a blood pressure medication this drug is also known by another common term, adrenaline. Emotions like anger and fear can help put out uh, a natural form of adrenaline to the body. When it is released into the body, it can cause an increase in heart rate, muscle strength, and blood pressure and sugar metabolism. So, pretty much, if, if someone was to inject you with it, you could technically look like you died 
naturally of, from a heart attack. From a heart attack. That's I right. mean, that's what it would look like unless they really did blood work, autopsy, that full nine thing, yards, right? Or, to, yeah, to find out. So I mean, that that could be one reason why she got away with things because it seemed like a natural cause, right? Kristen has been re- really messed up way of doing things. She would inject her victims with a large doses intravenous into intravenous therapy bag so she could create a drug-induced heart attack within her victims. What is more messed up would be the fact that she would bring her victims back, like we mentioned earlier. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense when you try to kill someone only to bring them back. Kristen's behavior was now fully turning. She killed Stanley and got away with it. The first kill would have given her some sort of confidence and a complex. There are many different types of serial killers. By examining their actions, we can figure out why they typically commit horrible acts towards others. The first type of serial killer is mission-oriented. This type of serial killer thinks that they are doing society a favor. Some of these killers see themselves as a hero. The second type of serial killer is the visionary killer. These individuals may suffer psychotic breaks due to society. These types of serial killers have some sort of external force or being that is telling them what to do. That way there they can say the being told me to do something and they aren't really responsible for their own actions. Which which that was uh, what Son of Sam had someone talking to him or something right to him. at first that's what he said like this demon dog thing was yeah. telling him what to do i mean later it came, he came out and, and admitted that he made all that up but that's what most of those killers are are saying that oh like the devil told me to do it right the third type of serial caller serial killer is called the thrill seeker these types of serial killers think that by outsmarting the police, they gain some sort of amusement from it. These tend to be the types that seek attention from the media. They want to be the sick kind of entertainer in a sense. Some of these serial killers can be methodical in their organization. Some may even be less organized on purpose to get attention. This may lead to mistakes done on purpose. These mistakes will get them noticed, thus giving them the attention. Zodiac? That's my guess. That was the first one I thought of when I thought of Zodiac. Um, they can either be very methodical and very organized, or they're very sloppy. There's nothing right. in between. That's the, the real secret. I mean, Zodiac wasn't sloppy at all. at all, but he was very meticulous. He was very... He wanted to be known. <clears throat> he wanted to be known. That's why he wrote those letters and, and so on and so forth. The fourth type of serial killer that we've come across is power and control type. These types of serial killer killers enjoy terror within their victims a killer of this kind of magnitude may have childhood trauma that leaves them powerless to feel power these individuals take power making them powerful for once see and that sounds like ted bundy that's right ted bundy was one of those he he wanted power he wanted control um he he treated uh like he he treated the the women that he loved if you can say he, he loved, loved um fairly decent but once he got a hold of the other women that he killed didn't love right it was all about power right. all about showing his control over them right. or control over the situation yeah 
as we continue with the story of Kristen Gilbert, we can't think about the power and control type. She's literally playing God and killing individuals just to bring them back and to try it again. Now, if she didn't bring them back, she could have uh, told a lie and said she did her best. This type of lie clearly shows her lust for power over others while maintaining the lie. By understanding Kristen, we are able to get into her mind and figure out the reasons why she would have committed these horrible acts. Within her personal life, she rents an apartment in East Hampton so she could move closer to James. Within 1995, it becomes official as she fully moves out with Glenn and starts to date James more and more. The lack of control with Glenn and possible added level of stress could have caused her to kill a second time. She kills her second victim, Henry Hutton, in 1995. Her personal life is causing a lack of control, so she, she, so she seeks control over the lives of others to feel better. Directly after this, after she kills Henry, Glenn files for a divorce, and it is official this time. Kristen must have known this was coming at some point. If she didn't know, then she might have been delusional already about Glenn. A part of her could have thought that she could have had control over Glenn, be married, and still date James at the same time. It is also possible that these issues of control could have driven a wedge between her and Glenn, causing the long overdue divorce. 1996, two months after the divorce from Glenn, Kristen kills again. This time she managed to take the life of Kenny Cutting. At this time, she's willing to kill uh, three people in Ward C. We can even assume by the third time around, she knew what she was doing and she had no regard for human life. Only 15 days after she kills Kenny Cutting, three nurses within the hospital come forward about Kristen. Each of these women may have had an idea, of, but by stating their concerns, they may have been able to prevent another killing. I can't believe she killed Kenny, that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> an investigation into Kristen begins. Only a single day later, Kristen kills a fourth time. She manages to take the life of Edward Sokola. This is her fourth victim, and yet she has not gotten caught. We can theorize she, th she heard about the investigation going on and rushed into the fourth kill, again because of lack of control via external forces. July 1996, Kristen openly confesses to three murders over the phone to James. This must have come as one hell of a shock to him. Just imagine newly dating someone for a year or two years, and they call you up and just tell you, yep, I killed three people. The range of emotions from James must have been heartbreaking. After this, James filed a restraining order against Kristen. Yeah, it's not like she was with James for, let's say, 20 years, 20 years, years. or something it, like that. This must have been maybe two years. Three tops. You know, I mean, even... Even if they were together for like 20 years or so, it would still come as a shock. But to tell someone to, over the phone? To tell someone over the phone and not face-to-face -face and just like... Well, face-to-face -face could have been worse. 
fit. Yeah, because then you'd get really scared. That's You're right. Like, okay, you, are, why are you telling me? You should know I'm going to tell someone. That's so right. Am I he, next? he was, I believe, he was a security <laughs> officer at the hospital. Oh uh, yeah. So I mean, the fact she was getting away with it while he was still there was just mind blowing. Yeah. So I, he he definitely would want to say something. You would think uh, so. I wouldn't be scared. No. Only a month later, James is summoned to a grand jury to testify against Kristen. Between the lying, the murdering, and the fact she made James feel foolish, there would be no way he wouldn't testify against her. Another month passes by. The investigation continues. Glenn speaks with the investigator, investigators. He invites them to his home. By the, inviting them in, he shows he had nothing to hide. With it first off, and second, he could potentially show them something else. The investigation comes across something within the home. They find a book of poisons within the home that belonged to Kristen. The loss of control was in full swing. First, the nurses have concerns, then James has a restraining order, and now Glenn is helping in the investigation. These three acts would have caused her to snap. She knew she to take it out on. Kristen arrives at Glenn's house and tries attacking her, uh, attacking him with her keys. A, a book of poisons. A book of poisons. Now, it, I don't know if it was a modern book of poisons or an older book of poisons, but it was like an encyclopedia kind it, of thing of poisons. It kind of makes sense. Here's the thing. She's, she's a nurse. I would think a nurse would want something kind of like that so they know what not to maybe mix with or if she wanted to know what to mix with right i'm not trying to like protect this woman but to me that's not real to me it's not real evidence no of okay she has a she's killed these people she has a book of poisons stuff like that i i just think like the whole book of poison i mean if you look at some of the books i have that's right we have some uh, messed up books we have some messed up books mostly because this is what we're doing that's right but like, would that get me in trouble? Probably. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Paul, like, oh, Stan just went on a killing spree. And he has nine books of serial killers. killers. He learned a lot. <laughs> uh, with a history of horrible behavior, Kristen does the next best thing she could. She calls in a bomb threat to the hospital to divert attention away from her case and toward the fake bomb. After the threat, the court orders her to Bay State Medical Center. Her her life is now being changed by force. After she is released, the court tells her she must live with her parents. She has to move from Massachusetts to Long Island, New York. November 1996, Kristen is indicted on charges of felony because she called in a fake bomb threat. Edward's body is examined. We did a little digging into how much uh, of a dosage is deadly. The range of a deadly dose is somewhere between 4 milligrams to 8 milligrams. Now, if she used any dose over 4, she knew what she was doing and made a clear choice. My guess is within the blood, they may have found this compound in his system. It is also possible that they checked his heart to see the condition of it. So she's not only being charged with murder. She's also being charged with a bomb threat. That's right. So... They did find out somehow that she made the bomb threat. That's right. <laughs> I, I so when, when things I are escalating, that. they're escalating very fast. Right. She, 
she's like trying everything and anything to keep herself like in control of something in control of the situation within january 1998 the first trial begins for the bomb threat during this time she is found guilty on the fake bomb threat at the end of her first trial she waits into her second trial Kristen serves over 15 months in prison as a way to help with any problems she may have had. She is serving her first sentence while she's waiting for her second. During this time, Stanley's body is examined. 1999, Kristen moves from the hospital to Hampton Country House of Corrections while she is still waiting for her second trial. In the year 2000, the trial begins for the murders. 70 witnesses come forward against her, and more than 200 items of evidence were used within her case. Can you imagine the paperwork? 70 people. I would hate, I would hate to be, like, the cops in charge of this. The trial alone must have been hours. Had to have been. I mean, i 70 witnesses? How much I've testimony never, is there? I've never heard of 70 witnesses. Every show... You think about it, every show, every documentary, um, you watch a tr- a trial of of someone. There's like I don't know five, six witnesses, tops, ma- tops. tops. There's never more, there maybe ten. I've then, never seen ten, more than ten. And then like the evidence, there's only like full of evidence. It's not like it's they, they must have been collecting this stuff for years, right? Years. Oh, wow. March 2001, Kristen Gilbert is found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder, one account of second-degree murder, and two counts of attempted murder. The jury sentences her to four consecutive life-term terms with route parole plus 20 years. It would seem that Kristen Gilbert wanted to control those around her because of a lack of control in her personal life. Now, what gives this case a little bit more irony is the fact that all of the control in her life is taken away just like that, just like the life she took away of her victims. This is the first case of our Summer of Serial series. And what a case it is. We're really starting it out with and, a big old bang. And the thing is, female serial killers, there's not many. There, well, well I, was, I was able to find a whole booklet about nurses, about 200 pages of documents about a dozen or so different types of nurses that all committed very heinous acts within the hospitals they were working, and that just says a lot. <laughs> they makes you not want to go to the hospital. No, it does not. You know what I mean? Like, can I have a can I have a male nurse, please? Because I don't want to. I don't want to deal with you. Like, <laughs> it does add a different it's level just, of creepiness to it. That's for wow. sure. It's just really creepy. Like, I just I don't understand it. Um. So that was our female. And uh, we'll get into our mail for this week. Okay, so with our mail section, our serial killer is going to be Paul John Knowles. He was also known as the Casanova Killer. And the reason for that is because very good looking. um, Was he charming? Very charming. You know, he was... Pretty much kind of like Ted Bundy, if you think of, like, Ted Bundy was very, um, you know, very good looking, very charming. That's why he was able to, you know, get 
as many girls as he did and killed them. Um, so he was Amer- uh, an American serial killer tied to about 20 people. Now, the reason why I'm saying about 20 people is because it's speculated that it was 35, but they only could tie him to about 18 to 20. He admitted w- during his arrest to close to 40 individuals, but none of that has been proven. Now, was it over a span of days, months? Does it does it really get into the details, or does it so, just say 40, 30, 30 to 45 people? So, what it said, the research that I found, this was over... He started a killing spree that took 15 weeks across the entire country. That's not a long time. No. He drove literally from, like, state to state, starting in one area, moving. And and that's what was hard with this case. This case was there, there are murders that were close to matching with his murders. Um, like a copycat? Kind of like a copycat, uh, but because he was moving so much, they couldn't like keep track of this guy. So, and back back this is in 1974, and back in these times, cop uh, police stations never talked to each other. So like so one state would not like Florida would not talk to Georgia. That makes sense, and yeah. so on and so forth. They never knew that. That's why it was so hard to find serial killers way back. They'd have to find them on a federal level or like the CIA or FBI sort of thing, too. And even then, they'd have to talk to government organizations that were above them. And that was just seemed tough, right? Right. So Knowles was born April 17th, 1946 in Orlando, Florida. There's not much found about his mother. I'm assuming and don't don't quote me on this, but I'm assuming it's because his mom died during childbirth. Um, His father as soon as he was born, his father gave him up to foster care and then was convicted um, and sentenced to prison for uh, theft. Does it say what he stole? It does not. No. you. That's the other thing. You can't find anything about his father. I've searched everywhere for this guy's parents. Literally, there's you can't even find his mother's name. Like Really? Yeah, you can't find his mother's name and you can't find his father's name. That's the only information you have. Um, I wonder what he stole. I, I would yeah. say a car, something would, big. I, I if would, you're spending that much time in prison, if you're it spending. Uh, I mean, it didn't even say how long he spent in prison. It's mostly because since he gave his son up for adoption, well, didn't even say it doesn't even say adoption. He went to foster care, so he didn't. So it might not have so necessarily it's almost like he give up his son on purpose. It was almost like he he dropped his son off at like a um firehouse police station something like that yeah you know if you think about that time it wasn't very uncommon that did happen a lot so his first um brush with law enforcement was when he was seven years old after he stole a neighbor's bike now what the cops did was they just grabbed Knowles, brought him back to the neighbor's house they gave him back the bike they told him he was wrong you know that sort of thing. There's not much you can do with a seven-year-old. No, they don't. They don't really know right from wrong yet. They're still learning these things, but there's still a clear act of defiance from his part. He was trying to lash out or do something, and stealing a bike seemed to be the first thing that came to mind. Now, since birth, Knowles 
jumped from foster care to foster care to foster care. Now, I don't want to say all foster families are bad because there are a lot of good people out that there really that really try to help people really and really do. make a difference. Yeah. Right. Um, I've, I've known people that have done foster care. My grandparents, um, way back, they did foster care for a while. There's a lot of good people that do it, but there's also people that do foster care really just to get money from it's really shady too they just do it for the money um there's been like known abuse cases and and stuff like that so after his mint spent uh misspent use uh youth he was arrested in may 1968 for attempted burglary and served three years in florida prison so he's his things are escalating slowly right his actions are really being defined by what he's doing or not doing and really going into the, the more devious behavior. Yeah, I mean, it it went from, you know, something simple when he was seven years old to all of a sudden, yeah, I, I just, like, tried to rob a house. It doesn't say exactly what he broke into, whether it's that's a big That's a big jump, though, if you think about right. it, from a bike to robbery. So they released him in 1971. But he he quickly got rearrested on similar charges. So he did it again. Yes. He escaped from a prison work camp the following year, but was recaptured three weeks later, earning him three more years in prison for the escape and resisting arrest. While serving time in prison, he became a pen pal with a lonely cocktail waitress in San Francisco named Angela. Now, for some of our listeners, I don't know how what our age range is. Pen pal was someone that you wrote to, right? Was someone you actually wrote to. Now, when I was in school, we actually had pen pals with another classroom across the country. See, in, at the school I went to, we never had anything like that at all. Really? But when my mom went to school, she had a pen pal, too, that she still talks to. Oh, I, that's cool. Yeah. That that's actually really neat. Yeah. Um so like prisons did the same thing. They actually had a um I don't know where they would have posted it back then, but they actually had um like a community where, board or some yeah, sort of where thing. Where you could actually sign up to actually get letters from an inmate and then you can then in turn send letters. She actually actually became infatuated with Knowles. Now, do you think these letters were monitored, or do you think that they were just, at that time, do you think they were just sent openly? So, I don't know how, I know now, letters and everything are highly, like, monitored monitored and stuff like that. Scrutinized a little bit. I don't know how it worked back then, Um, but, I mean, she was so infatuated with him that she hired a criminal attorney um, who secured him an early release, and in May of 1974... Uh, Knowles headed to California for a fresh start um, with Angela. Now, when he got to California, things didn't work as well as what Angela thought. So she kind of almost promised him like a dream life with her sort of thing. And then the reality of the situation really took in. So, yeah, it was pretty much like, hey, come out to California, fresh start, live with me. You know, let's... Let's make this work. So, one day, he pretty much revealed himself, his dark side, his corrupt spirit, 
and she did not like that at all. So she she, she did know he was in prison, though, right? She, I wonder if he right. lied to her. So I'm wondering that too, or like, fib the truth. Yeah, like oh hey, maybe I was I was framed or or whatever. I only escaped because I'm innocent and, and you know stuff like that. Um, it doesn't really say you know what he actually told her, but she sent him packing. Um, enraged, he returned to Florida, where he was again arrested in Jacksonville for aggressive assault. Which I don't know what aggressive aggressive. Uh, that's assault. not that's not good. I mean, aggressive assault. You could uh, I mean, you would probably think that he was at a bar or something like that, and, it, the, and the waitress right. was, you know, giving him a drink, and he was being a real rude bastard to her or something like that. You know. That's what I think of when I think of the term aggressive assault. So again, he was sent to jail. And July 26, 1974, he escaped for the final time. And it was on, it was on this day that he decided to um, engage in his brutal campaign across the country. Over the next 15 weeks, he made good on his promise to have his name inscripted in the news as one of the most notorious serial killers of the 21st century by killing, almost killing a person every week for 15 weeks. Now, was it a different person? Like, I'm not saying, like, was it a female, male? Was it a kid? Was it an older, elderly person? Was there a certain pattern or was he just like, I'm going to go for it and just go? Uh, a lot of these, like, there were most more females. Um, later, you know, it kind of, most of the male killings that I was finding, they were mostly um, spur of the moment type yeah. of deals yeah. where, like, the females he kind of, like, took his time with. Um, Almost toying with it, the idea before he really right. enacted what he was going to do. Yeah, so, so with the males, it just seemed like it was a necessity. Like, I had to kill this person because this reason. Where the females was like, you know, I'm having fun with it. Um, so, Noel's cross-country murder spree began in Jacksonville on the night of his escape. So, literally, he broke out of jail, and then he started this. That, that That's not good at all. No. I wonder if he was on parole when he... Uh, well, no, he escaped, so he wasn't on parole, but he was just like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to make it happen. And here's my other question. If you are known to be someone who is a flight risk, an escapee, you would think they'd put him in some sort of maximum security. Or in, uh, like, isolation. I mean, I understand that a lot of his, uh, the crimes that he was getting arrested for were, like, burglary and stuff. And so it's like, yeah, okay, he broke out of jail, but it's not like he, but it's not like he murdered anyone. But at that small risk, though, I mean, it could have escalated quicker into bigger and bigger risks if it's unchecked. Right. Yeah, that's very true. So on the night of his escape, he broke into the home of 65-year-old Alice, uh, bound and gagged her, ransacked her home for money and valuables, then stole her car. Uh, Alice choked to death on the gag. So this was oh, almost like oh, a that's rough, it, like an accident, pretty much his first kill. Um, it it, it kind of didn't seem like an accident. He kind of knew the he, general he sense of what knew, it, what he was doing, right, but he, he kind of knew. Um, to me, it was like what it sounds like it was a spur of the moment. Like, okay, I need I need things, 
and that's and he just didn't want her to say anything. I don't think he really meant to kill her. And the only reason why I'm saying this is because of her age. Once we go further in, you'll you'll see like the age difference. So in August uh, 1974, he ended up uh, ended up uh, abducting a 13 year old girl. Oh shit! Uh, I'm a Jean Sanders. Uh, she had run away from from home, and her mother and father were looking for her desperately. He ended up finding her on the side of the road. He bound and gagged her. He ended up taking her into the woods uh, and uh, hiding the body. And they never found the body until he actually confessed to it. Confessed to it. Now, I wonder how he lured her in. I wonder if he, he was like, I know your family. Oh, I've got a missing dog. Because remember, we did talk about our missing people series. And some of those people that did go missing were lured in a way that they felt comfortable with the person that they were being abducted by. What the family said was she was very trustworthy. Like, no matter what, she was very trustworthy. And being very trustworthy and a runaway, uh, I'm pretty sure she would j- jump into any any vehicle that would pull over and say, hey, do you need any help? Do you need- I'll take you to a better place. Right. I'll help you out. I know maybe your family life isn't great right now. We, we've heard a lot of people that really try to abduct people any way they can to get what they want, which is really screwed up. So the day after she went missing, Knowles met Howie, 49, Atlanta Beach, Florida. Uh, she invited him or, for, uh, or was forced by him to go to her apartment where he strangled her with nylon stockings and stole her TV set. There, it's really a, escalating quickly, huh? And there's also this like common theme with him where he kills and steals something. Now, it's not like he's collecting um, trinkets, or trinkets or anything because it's a lot of big things. Big things. Um, I wonder if he was using stealing the big things. Selling the big things and using that money to fund more killing. Yes, uh, that could be exactly right. I mean, it, he needs money somehow. I mean, he's traveling cross country, so he's he's starting here. Um, now he's going to end up in Georgia. Okay, so on. So on, from Florida to Georgia isn't too far. It isn't too far. Um, on August twenty third, nineteen seventy four, he shows up in Georgia and forces his way into the home of Kathy. Now some of these. Some of the names I'm saying, I'm leaving out their last names and stuff. Um, the stuff I read also left out their last names. That I'm, makes sense. I'm pretty sure, you know, if I do find a last name, I do say it because that, to me, that means the family allowed it. That's right. When I don't see a last name, I don't go into it's more privacy. Yeah, right. Yeah. So she was there at her home with her three year old son. Noel strangled her but left the uh, child physically unharmed. So he had a soft spot for kids. That's what I'm... Young kids. Young kids. Young kids. Right. Now, he goes from Georgia all the way up to Ohio. That's a bit of a haul. Yes. I've I've driven cross-country a couple of times, and going from states to states takes a lot out of you, but if, if he's really motivated, you can do it. 
So he met up with a William Bates, a 32-year-old accountant uh, for a Ohio power company. The bartender who know, knew Bates recalled that Bates and a young uh, redheaded man had several drinks and eventually left together. Bates' wife then reported him missing, and the police realized that his car was also missing. So they left in the same vehicle, according to this, right? Yeah. So knowing that the, the car was also missing, they put put out a all-points bulletin, or APB. APB, yeah. Uh, around where the car was missing. Now, at this time, they didn't have GPS or tracking, anything like right. that. So when, when a car went missing, you really had to look for it, and you really had to ask questions about the pe- people that these victims were around mm-hmm. and to, to kind of determine where their last location could be or possible locations where it could be, too. Right. Now driving Bates' car, he moved onto a campground in Nevada. So now he so went. So where from was he last? Ohio. So Ohio to Nevada. Right. That's a good eight, twelve-hour haul, maybe even longer, depending on which route you go. Mm-hmm. Now, when he got to Nevada, or got to the campground in Nevada, this was September eighteenth, nineteen seventy-four. He bound and shot two elderly campers. Because it was seemingly a random murder, there was no leads until Knowles later confessed the crimes. So it went on as a unsolved murder until he was arrested. Wow, that's not good at all. On September 21st, 21st 1974, Knowles' killing spree continued. This time, it was in Texas. There he came upon a stranded motorcyclist who... He abducted and raped before strangling her with her own pantyhose and dragged her body through a barbed wire fence. Her oh, body man. her body wasn't found until four days later. Wow. He's really he's really escalating which eat with each kill. He's really bringing it to a new extreme too. It's making he's making it personal too with the forms of his killing. Well and the other thing is his where he goes is very sporadic. It's very sporadic. You, you know what I mean? It, you go from Florida to Georgia to Ohio, right? And then from Ohio to Nevada, To right? Nevada, to Texas. Now he is, I'm sorry, from Ohio to Texas to Nevada. Now he went from Nevada to Connecticut. He is jumping around. Right. He arrives in Connecticut in the middle of October 1974, where he continues his vicious killing spree. He enters the home of Karen Wine and her 16-year-old daughter, uh, Dawn, on October 16, where he bound and raped them both before killing them oh with nylon God. stockings. So he's so he's kind of found his weapon of choice. Stockings for a couple of these has been his weapon. I wonder if that goes back to his childhood again. Some sort of something that affects him with stockings. Right. Um. They also found that a tape recorder was missing from the home. So that goes back towards, you know, he's taking, taking something from... Maybe selling them again. Um, October 18th, 1974. So this was days later. Knowles has made his way to Virginia, where he broke into the home of uh, 53-year-old Doris. 
shot her to death with her husband's rifle, then wiped his prints off the gun and placed it beside her bed. So now he's using a gun, which in all the other murders, he was being more personal and using other items. Now he's using a, a gun and trying to make it, I don't know, more indirect or less less of a struggle for him. Yeah. So he's kind of getting well, lazy. I'm also thinking he's one of those guys who are trying to look for things in the house to use to kill the victims. Where all these other victims were just, like, women. And what did most women have on their person in 1974? Pantyhose. Pantyhose. Because, you know, dresses were a thing for yeah. a while. Yeah. Um, And he breaks into this house and sees, well, shit, there's a gun there. Why don't I just use Make that? Make my job easier. I mean, it also shows how smart he is, too, because he was he wiped his prints off the gun. Not many serial killers would have done that at that time because right. it wasn't a real thing you would have thought about. No. Now, he's still driving Bates' stolen car. At, still. Still. So his whole... He, he has been caught by the... Like, cops no. haven't pulled him over at all because it's a different state car going from state to state. Yeah, he's he's still driving. So car, the car must have been registered, and inspected, and it, all that. That's the only other thing I would have. He thought must of. have been driving the to the point where he's not showing any any reason to get pulled, pulled over. over. Yeah. So Knowles picks up two hitchhikers now down in Key West, Florida. So, so he's going now back to Florida. He's going back wow, to Florida. That's really strange. With the intention of killing both, but he his plan went awry. When a policeman stopped him for a traffic violation, unaware of who he was dealing with, the officer let Knowles go with a warning. You're kidding me. So he must have ran a stop sign or a red light or yeah. something like that, and they didn't even think anything of it. Now, shaken by the experience, Knowles had mercy on his victims and dropped them off in Miami. Contacted a lawyer shortly thereafter. He rejected his lawyer's suggestion of surrender but arranged a meeting with uh the arranged a meeting with the lawyer now when he met with the lawyer he actually taped a confession but then slipped out of town before the police were conf- uh before the police were informed of his presence wow. so he he confessed to a lawyer but yes. the police really didn't catch wind of it until after the fact is what you're saying so it's pretty much like he had this moment of okay, clarity. Clarity. I need to turn myself in. That's why I contact the lawyer. It, it was all about him getting pulled over and almost getting caught. That was his thing. So like he got scared, wanted to somehow find a way to get out of it. And as soon as he taped the confession, he was like, you know, what? I'm getting out of here. That's right. I'm making a run for it. So on November 6, 1974, he's now in Georgia. Again, back to Georgia. Yep. He's really bouncing around. He really does not like to stay in one location for an extended period of time. Uh, Knowles befriended Carswell Carr and invited uh, and Carr invited him back to his house to spend the night over over drinks. He stabbed Carr to death and then strangled Carr's 15-year-old daughter. After murdering the girl, Noel attempted to engage in necrophilia oh, man. with her corpse. Oh. So after he killed the girl and 
performed the heinous act on her again. Um, Knowles was actually suspected of killing a couple hitchhikers. Does Uh, it say if they're male or female? It does not, no. Uh, they they were actually found near um, the last location where he was. So that was would have been Georgia then, right? Yeah, it was in Georgia. Now, the reason why they suspected him was he was the last person seen with these people. A lot, Like I said, a lot of the names and stuff were... Kind of redacted. Right, redacted and stuff like that. There was a lot of made-up names. And I could use made-up names. But now, I wonder if these people from Georgia were hiking the Appalachian Trail, because the trail does run from Maine to Georgia, so that could have been... So, a lot a lot of the people that he's he was, like, picking up um, were either hitchhikers or, uh, you're right, avid hikers. Um, now, he's still driving the stolen car, by the way. Still driving the stolen dri- car. So, I mean, these, this is months... Months and months and months, he's still driving these cars. Now, he decides to go to Atlanta and start bar hopping. Why not? And this is November 8th. He meets a British journalist. Impressed with her, with with his looks, which were a cross between Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. This is... So he's fancy looking. Right. He probably has a chiseled jaw of some kind. They spent the night together. But he was repeatedly unable to perform when they attempted to have sex over the next few days. I wonder if he was just caught off guard because she was a pretty woman and he didn't know what to do. Maybe maybe his conscience got the best of him and he was like, I'm not going to kill her. Wait, what the hell do I do now? So at this point, she she suggested that he was impotent. And probably set him off. And set it to his face. Oh, no. They parted ways. Nothing happened to her. She... She's alive? Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised. I'm honestly surprised. Uh, but the next day, this is now... Yeah, so this is now uh, November 10th. Okay, so when he first met this girl was November 8th. So November 10th, uh, he picked up a Susan McKenzie... Demanded sex from her at gunpoint. She escaped and notified police. Which did she know his name? She did not. She just said a a man came up to me, forced almost forced me to do this. Okay, so now he's kind of almost on the radar on police. You would think, right? Maybe. Yeah, sort of. So she went to the police. She told them that this man had a sawed-off shotgun and demanded sex from her, and she was able to get away. Now, days later, he still is able to get away. Still at it. Wow. Yeah, still able to get away from police. In West Palm Beach, Florida. So So back to Florida. Back to Florida. I wonder if it was the weather that led him back. Some of the areas he seems to go to are more on the warmer side. And then he he doesn't really go to, like, New England or anything like that. Right. So he's staying in in the center of the United States or the South. He it was almost like he went on to on a little adventure, right? right. Yeah. So he went to all these different states, but now he's at the point where he's in his comfort zone because this is his home state. So now this is where he like loves it. So now he's uh, so days later, West Palm, Florida, he invades a home um, where he abducted 
uh, abducted a little girl and stole their car. So now he has a different car. So he dropped off the old car. Yes. Now, he drives to Fort Price, Florida. I don't know how far that is from West Palm. He he arrives the following night, so it must have taken a day, day, maybe. He dropped the hostage off without any incident. So, again. So, he had a hostage that whole mm-hmm. drive? Wow. Yeah. Did, and he didn't do anything? Nope. Now, now this is November 16th. Florida Highway Patrol trooper, uh, Officer Campbell, recognized the stolen vehicle near Perry, Florida. And attempted to make an arrest after he pulled over Knowles. Hmm. Knowles was able to wrestle the officer's pistol away from him. Oh, no. Taking Campbell hostage. No. He drove away in his patrol car. He has the patrol car. Yeah. Later using the sirens to stop a motorist, James Mayer, in order to ditch the highway patrol vehicle and to continue in a less um, noticeable vehicle. So he he bugs bunnied it. Yeah. So he basically like took the cop car. I don't know if he dressed as the cop, pulled someone over and was like, I'm taking your car now. Oh, and I, I, but yeah, he took both of them prisoner. So he has the police officer yeah. and this other driver prisoner in the, the new car, not the police car. Correct. Right. In in this new car, he took the two men into a remote woods wooded area in Georgia. So now he's in. So he drove from Florida back to Georgia, back to Georgia with two hostages, mm-hmm. and handcuffed them to a tree before shooting each of them in the head, close range, execution style. Yep. Knowles crashed the car through a police barricade. Uh, what the police uh, roadblock was set up by. County Detective Phil Howard and Officer Jerry uh, Jerry K. After being involved in a car chase with uh, with the sheriff's department, had nothing to do with him. So he's he crashes his car into this. So pretty much, he comes across this roadblock. The roadblock is set there not the, because of him, but, but because, because of a the, car chase. Because of a car chase. So he takes it upon himself because he's thinking it's for him. He drives through it. So as he drove, drives through, he crashes the vehicle. He escapes from the vehicle on foot and fires shots at the pursuing officers. Knowles was shot in the foot during the escape. Officer K was injured when Knowles stole the car. So he stole another police car? Or stole a radar? Uh, stole, yeah, stolen a crash. Stolen and crashed another patrol car. So this guy's stealing yeah. car, police cars left and right. He's almost like Grand Theft Autoing it. So after he crashed this car, he then pursues again on foot and is later tracked down by dogs and a helicopter. So it's really escalating now. Uh-huh. Helicopters and dogs. Man. Knowles was finally cornered. On November 17th by a 27-year-old former Vietnam vet uh, named David Clark, an armed civilian with a shotgun several miles from where he was. So police couldn't take him down. Uh, But but this armed vet vet did. Wow. So once... uh, So the, the guy kept him 
at his at the location until police arrived. So the he did like a citizen's arrest, pretty much. Yeah. Um. Once he was in custody, Knowles claimed to be responsible for thirty-five murders, but they only could uh, contribute twenty of those murders to him. At so, the at the time, so he claims thirty. Yep. But really, it's like twenty, twenty something so far. So far. Now, on December eighteenth, nineteen seventy-four, uh, the sheriff and the Georgia Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which I didn't know was a thing. I know that was a thing either. I thought the FBI was a big overseeing. Yeah. Thing, but maybe each state has their own sort of FBI thing. I don't know. So what they did was they they had Newell Knowles, and they needed to transfer him back to Georgia, back to. Uh, uh, sorry, Atlanta. The reason for this is because he told them that the cops, the cops pistol, he tossed off into the interstate. So they needed to do a follow up investigation and follow up questioning in Atlanta with them. So they traveled from where they were. It doesn't say exactly where they were at the. They're in another county further. So I've driven. I've driven through Georgia uh, a few times and. Uh, that highway is big. It, right. it You can go across the whole damn state on a couple of different highways. And if it's morning traffic, you ain't going to find anything along that highway. So when they were traveling to to where they needed to go, they had one officer in the backseat with Newell, uh, Knowles and one officer driving. Knowles somehow got his hands from in back of him and went after the cop's pistol. The one that was the beside, one that him, was, yeah. beside him? So as they were wrestling for this gun, the gun went off through the holster. How the hell did that happen? Now, gun went off. The guy driving pulls over. They're still wrestling in there, and he still hears gun the gun going off. So he took his pistol out, the, the driver, and shot Knowles to death. Shot him in the chest. It makes sense. And that's where it ended. That's how he... There was no so trial. The, there so was the no police nothing. could have potentially taken him in in a better manner to figure out where most of these victims were, but instead things had escalated to a point where the police I, had no other option I don't but know, to just take him down. I don't know if that was protocol back then to have someone riding next to an assailant. But maybe if he committed crimes against police officers, they wanted to make sure that Right, things were more secure. That could be. I mean, it just—it's very because nowadays, you know, it—they're—they're they're literally handcuffed in into the seat. There's like places where you can handcuff someone into the seat. So maybe maybe that's one reason why they do that. Yeah. But yeah, that is, um, the Casanova killer. So that was our first, first episode. episode on uh, our summer of serial. I hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, please like uh, us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a review for us, please review us on Apple Podcasts, too. Yes, definitely. Uh, please email us at CaptivatedMinds2. We'd love an email. Um, at gmail.com. That's CaptivatedMinds, the number two, at gmail.com. Our Instagram is Minds Captivated, and our Facebook is Captivated Minds. I have everything linked in the show notes. So 
All you, you gotta do is just click it, and you're on your way. Yeah. Once, uh, like our email address, you click on your email address, and you literally can just email us from there. I mean, it, it's that easy. We'd love to hear from you guys. You know, I'd like to use some of maybe your stories or listener stories or any content that you'd want us to talk about. We'd love to hear from you too. Yeah, I'd like to add that to like our conspiracy corner episodes. So, uh, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, and have a good one.